again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome back as we continue in our third season. My name is Jeff Kwame. I am your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. On behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this very special episode of Scope of Practice. Our 28th president, Woodrow Wilson, once said, if you want to make enemies, try to change something. That quote certainly rings true in the fields of substance use disorder prevention, treatment, and recovery. One overriding belief is held by a significant majority, as well in the formation of programming to honor what the field believes. Well, we know what the field believes has not led us to practice what we preach, namely meeting clients where they are at, focusing on the goals that they want to achieve. We're much better at expecting them to meet our standards and strive for what our organizations are pushing. Something must change. The prevailing wisdom is that SUDs are chronic relapsing diseases of the brain, and there is a strong requirement that one accept that without question, as if science will not point us in any other direction. Evidence does exist, however, that SUDs may be better described as attachment or learning disorders, and these theories are gaining traction among those not invested in a status quo. The reality is that if we preach multiple pathways to recovery, why would we not also look at multiple pathways of correlation? Is substance abuse disorders, what if substance abuse disorders are not disorders at all? What if they're the outcome of the brain's normal cognitive processes? Interestingly, research on this perspective is not new, going back at least six years of publication, as well as being funded by the National Institute on Drug Addiction, on dr drug abuse. Why we have not discussed it as a professional community in larger scale? I don't know. That answer lies well above my pay grade, but I find that question interesting. Today, we'll talk more about this. Our guest today is Dr. Brian Anderson at Texas A&M University. His specialty areas are cognition and cognitive neuroscience, as well as affective science. His research investigates the mechanisms by which reward learning changes how we direct our attention in the future. The findings from this research not only inform our understanding of the basic mechanisms of attentional control, but also have clearly identifiable clinical implications. For patients who struggle with substance use disorders, ignoring stimuli associated with their drug of abuse, it's very difficult to do, and this difficulty contributes to relapse. Attention can persistently be drawn to drug-related stimuli, even when the patient has the goal of maintaining abstinence. This research demonstrates that normal, healthy individuals can develop strikingly similar attentional biases as the result of simple associative learning between stimuli and non-drug reward, suggesting that the addiction-related attentional biases may be more reflective of a broader and more basic cognitive process. Dr. Anderson's research has been published in countless professional journals. He received his undergraduate degree at the University of Maine at Augusta, his master's at Villanova, and his doctorate in psychological and brain sciences from Johns Hopkins. We welcome Dr. Anderson and his wealth of knowledge and experience to the program. Glad to have you, sir. Thanks for having me. Nice to talk to a New England native. <laughs> yeah, I've been working my way south my whole life, you know, <laughs> from uh, Maine to Pennsylvania to Maryland, now to Texas. And uh, yeah, I, I still miss the, the beauty of where I grew up, for sure. And it's getting to be about that time where we'll see the trees turning. Uh, I really think it's important for professionals in the field who may not be uh, familiar with the research to have an understanding of how it impacts what we do and to be more comfortable with it. Uh, with that being said, can you talk a little bit about the process you undertook in this project? Yeah, so overarchingly, I would say what really drives my research is, is the desire to understand how people really process information. 
because there there can be a bit of a disconnect between how people think they see the world, how they think they process information and how they really do. And so uh, I think a really kind of common knowledge case in point for that, which isn't exactly what I study, but it's related, um, is the phenomenon of uh, so-called multitasking. Right? So if you take an average person and you say, hey, can you multitask? You know, a lot of people will say, absolutely. I do it all the time and I'm pretty good at it. Um, and But if you have them engage in carefully controlled scientific experiments where we measure their performance, measure how they process information, we, we can see beyond a shadow of a doubt that, in fact, essentially nobody can do two tasks at the same time without some kind of cost, right? So there's a disconnect between how people think they process information um, and how they objectively really do. Um, and I study that in the context of distraction, you know, so how much are you able to restrict your attention to the thing that you want to focus on and how much do different kinds of stimuli or objects distract you? I, I think you need to objectively measure where people look, you know, how their ability to focus changes in different contexts and situations in order to really answer that question of how we process information. Because just like with multitasking, if you ask people, they're probably going to give you an answer that might not truly reflect how they actually do process information because a lot of information processing is involuntary and beyond conscious awareness. We often think that we understand how our brain works individually, um, but to say that would be a, a complete overstatement because there's so much going on. But right. We, we, we only have a conscious window to so much of what our brain is doing and the information that we're processing at any one moment in time. We have a tendency to con construct our narrative of what life is like and what we're like on the basis of what we're conscious of. But there's a lot more going on, too. I'd like to jump in kind of here with the big picture. Uh, in your research, you, you know, you show that individuals with substance use disorders and those without SUDs have very similar cognitive processes and the development of a substance use disorder is not necessarily a function of pathology. Am I expressing that correctly? Yeah, I think there's certainly some truth to that. Um, and so one of the ways that I think you can see this very clearly is when you compare how somebody who struggles with a substance use disorder processes a drug use. So this might be a, a syringe, for example, um, if you're addicted to a substance that you would inject. Um, and this is how anybody I can bring into to my lab is going to process an object that I can arbitrarily associate with reward. So I can just show you some object on the computer screen. I compare that with a reward outcome and I can ask, okay, how does your brain process that information now that you've learned an association with that object? How does that change? the way that you respond to that cue. Um, and if you measure how somebody in an experiment like that responds to just any arbitrary object I can pick and associate with reward in my lab, and how someone who struggles with a substance use disorder processes a drug-related cue, you, you see a tremendous amount of commonality there. So the same brain areas are gonna be responding to that object. Um, you're similarly distracted by it beyond your will. So you may say, well, I, I want to ignore it. Like the experimenter told me to ignore it. The task is to focus on something else. Um, just like with a substance use disorder, you might say, I don't want to go there with that place anymore. No, I want to focus my life on something else. And, and your attention just kind of keeps going back to it over and over and over again, in spite of the fact that you don't want to attend to it anymore. Um, and you have no motivation to um, in the particular context of what you say your goals are. Same brain areas are involved in the same struggle with behavior, too. So I can show you that kind of reward cue. 
And, and a normal person is going to have a little bit more difficulty inhibiting a behavioral response um, toward an object. It's just kind of like you see that reward associated object and it just kind of propels your brain toward action. Um, and it makes it all the more difficult to inhibit whatever that action might be, which in the case of substance use disorder is approaching you know, to consume substance. And I think we forget when you talk about stimuli and rewards, um, for those of us that have worked in the field and seen kind of the, the, the scourge of substance use disorders, we forget that the rewards still exist. Somebody who is uh, dependent upon opiates, the reward is significantly that they're not going to, the brain knows, hey, this is going to help me from withdrawing. This yeah. So it draws to it. We forget that although there's a lot of misery involved, for the brain, there is a reward. Right. And, and another thing that we see, too, in, in my research and research from my colleagues is that e even those initial experiences uh, of the, the more kind of positive side of the reward, e you can see consequences of those that are very persistent, even in a normal person. Um, so, so the idea that I can bring you back to the lab, you know, nine months later, you don't even remember what the experiment was about when you were there nine months ago, but there's still some residual consequence of that learning and how you process information. And you can see that consequence throughout hundreds, literally hundreds of presentations of the same stimulus. It's not that this thing just kind of dies off like that. You know, you see these residual consequences um, of reward learning that, that are quite persistent. Um, and then if the substance obviously has some rewarding properties for kind of removing some of the symptoms of withdrawal, that only helps to kind of continue to feed that process, which is again, you know, very persistent, even in a normal person. You talk about attentional biases, and for those in the audience who may not be familiar with that term, can you define what those are? So when it comes to attention, there's only a small amount of information at any one moment in time that your brain is capable of processing. And so we would say that information sort of competes for representation in your brain. That, that's true if you just look at an image, like a, you know whatever is in front of you right now. There's a, probably, if you're in a normal like, room in a house or an office or something like that, you know, there's a lot of different objects around that you could hypothetically be processing. You know? So my own office here, I got a bookshelf and all these different books and all these objects on my desk. I got some you know, gear you know, from my experiments that I'm testing out. But I'm not simultaneously processing all that information in any one moment in time. And it's the same way when my, in my mind's eye. So even when I'm just kind of thinking about my past or thinking about what I could do today or tomorrow, there's only a small amount of information that my brain's capable of representing in any one moment in time. Um, and so that's kind of where attention comes into play, right? So attention is the brain's mechanism for selecting what is that information that I'm going to be representing. I can only represent a small amount of it. So what am I going to represent in any one moment in time, either when I'm just kind of perceiving what's in front of me or when I'm thinking about all the information that, you know, I've stored in my memory at any one moment in time. Um, and so when we talk about attentional biases, what we mean is that your brain kind of almost has this gravity to go in a particular direction and to direct that attention to a particular object or memory or experience or something like that. That there's this kind of gravity that when your brain decides, what am I going to represent? What am I going to pay attention to? It has a proclivity to direct that attention to certain things over others. Uh and in, in essence, for, for the purposes, we would call call those triggers for relapse. It, it The brain has an attentional bias towards those triggers. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then you can see a lot of contextual effects there too. So maybe using a substance isn't on your mind, but all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where it kind of conjures up uh, some memories, you know, of having used that substance. And all of a sudden you've got all that gravity in your attention pulling you toward that. And it's hard to get it off your mind now. And it's just kind of dominating your thought world. Um, And when it starts dominating your thought world, if you think about it, the, the logical next step, right? You know, we can only make decisions about what we're representing in our brain, right? If I'm not even representing it, it's not even on my mind at all. Like I, I can't decide what to do about it, whether I want to go approach it or not. And so when something draws your attention like that, now all of a sudden it has the potential to influence your behavior. And if you have a bias toward approaching things that have that kind of reward association, all of a sudden it's kind of pulling you almost, you know, in a figurative sense, behaviorally and it just makes it all the more challenging to overcome that you know and and of course people do overcome that you know anytime you feel tempted to sort of overeat for example or something like that you know you you understand that yeah of course it's possible to inhibit that i'm not i'm not saying that people are zombies or anything like that but if you find yourself with those poles all the time eventually it's going to get you when you're weak right it's going to get you when you're tired you're spent for the day or you've, you know, inhibited that impulse a hundred times and the hundred and first time it's just too much. Right. Um, and, and you, and you, and you give in or, or all those other same kinds of processes that you see at play, um, in, in something like overeating where you say, well, you know, maybe this one time won't be so bad or, you know, you, you can engage in all of these, you know, rationalizations to sort of figure out how you handle that impulse. And, and as you're talking and I'm, uh, I'm imagining, uh, individuals who are smokers the cigarettes are always on their mind they always argue that oh i'm going to go to bed do i have enough for the morning do i have you know it's always well i bought one pack but is that enough i better get two that it, there's a bias there that it's drawn to that because it the reward they're looking for the reward yeah absolutely is, is this kind of the brain's own way to, to for to achieve homeostasis well, I, I, I guess you can put it that way. Yeah, I, I, a very similar way that, that I would put it is that this is a, when you think about it, it's, it's overarchingly an adaptive response that sort of becomes maladaptive in a particular context or situation. Um, and so almost all the time, I, I want my attention to be drawn to things that are rewarding for me. You know, I, I don't want to have to expend all this mental energy trying to find opportunities that are rewarding for me trying i if i don't happen to be thinking about it at that moment in time i miss out on an opportunity um and so i maybe something you know is kind of there and it needs to draw my attention and say oh like you know i i should go enjoy this or i should you know not not just kind of ignore all the things that are important for me reward wise you know all the time um and because mental life can be very cognitively demanding. You know, if I have a, a process in my brain that just kind of draws me into those opportunities when they're there, um, it makes it so much more likely that I'm going to be able to capitalize on whatever opportunities I have to obtain a reward and to feel good. And so your brain has a built-in process for doing that. Now, obviously, when something that was rewarding is later found out to have all of these other kind of negative qualities associated with it. And then you decide that actually it's not good for me in the long run. Now, all of a sudden you have this kind of conflict between that automatic sort of draw you into a reward process that your brain has 
and your higher level knowledge that in the long run, this isn't good for me. You know, a lot of times you don't get that conflict, but with things like substance abuse, you do. And then you see that conflict play out in the, in the tendency to relapse. Would you say that that conflict can even play out in simpler uh, terms? You all, you know, you always have the alarm clock on the right side of your bed, but you move your room around and suddenly it's on the left. When the, you hear it go off, your brain automatically tells you to go to the right side. Are you, is that a con that's, that you have to consciously think, oh, I need to get it it's on the other side? Is it the similar kind of conflict in the brain? There, 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 there's some analogies to be had there. Um, absolutely. The, the, the biggest one of which is that they're, they're, they're both very habit driven. Yeah. Um, and you see that really prominently in addiction. And, and in other cases, too, you, the, the, that helps to underscore just the value of having that kind of habit learning system. You know, so when I wake up in the morning and I get ready for the day, I never have to think about where is my toothbrush? Right? I, I, I don't consciously search for it. My, my attention system just knows, you know, when I want to brush my teeth, like it's over here. It's like on the second shelf from the top, you know, in my little yeah. cabinet um, next to my sink, um, whatever they call those cabinets. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm in like get ready for the day mode. And when I'm in get ready for the day mode, my attention system knows where all the stuff is that I need to, you know, shave and brush my teeth and do all those things. And you, I think that we're creatures of habit. like and if something in that routine that we do in the morning is missing, it can throw us off. For me, it's if, uh, you know, when I get the coffee and all of that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, if I if I do something out of order, what I'm used to or miss something, I'm thinking about it. Oh, my goodness. What did I miss? And it, it can ultimately change my attentional focus during the day. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, like, hey, something wasn't right there and it throws off everything else. Uh, one thing that your conclusion states is that these attentional biases to drug cues uh, are not unique consequences of the physiological effects of the substance, and they're not a result of any pathological process and, and really have parallels with normal cognition. Can you ex express that in layman's terms for those listening? Yeah, so I think this piggybacks a lot off of what we were talking about earlier. Yep. You know, the the way that our brains process information is, I think, a, a lot more automatic and voluntary and habit-driven than we have a tendency to, to kind of give it credit for. Um, and, and as a result of that, it's not a surprise, I don't think, at least for me anyway, that given that, you know, strong influence of habits and involuntary processes, that if you associate a cue or some object like a syringe, you know, with a drug reward, it's going to develop this habitual tendency to, to draw your attention that, that's very much analogous to the kinds of attentional biases that you would see for anything you associate reward with, like, you know, the, the, the candy packaging for a candy that you really like. Um, and now, I, I do want to be clear on one thing, which is that I, I, don't want to I don't want listeners to take that analogy too far in that if I give you a substance of abuse, I am jacking up your reward system far more strongly than I could with a normal reward. And so often what you see with kinds of these attentional biases is that they're absolutely stronger right. in somebody who struggles with substance abuse than, than you do would see with reward in my lab. Um, and, and I think that's largely a consequence of the strength of the reward. You know? so, so I'm not saying that they're completely analogous in degree, they're absolutely not. Substance abuse attentional biases are considerably stronger, 
but they're tapping into the same architecture of your brain and they're causing the same kinds of responses, just stronger in degree. You can kind of have a little bit of an intuition for that, I think, just kind of going back to the yeah. kind of layman's terms request. Um, for, you know, it wasn't all that long ago, um, I guess 4th of July, right? 4th of July is a big barbecue season all over the place. And, and I'm in Texas now, originally from New England, right? But in yeah. Texas, like barbecues are even bigger here than it was where yeah. I grew up. And man, when I'm walking down the street and I'm smelling that barbecue, I'm just like, damn, I need some barbecue. Right? And I didn't have barbecue on my mind at that point in time, um, but I, I've always enjoyed it. Um, and so all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm getting that cue and it's propelling me, you know, to want to act on that. You know, I have this involuntary like, like I want barbecue. Like, I know I'm not hungry. I just had lunch for Pete's sake, you know, but but you you feel that that dry and it's hard to get it off your mind. You know, yeah. the, the whole walk, I'm just kind of like thinking about barbecue <laughs> and I can't get it off my mind. And it's, it's, like you it's, said, it's the difference in strengths, but the process, it's parallel. It's not the same, but it's parallel. And I think that that's an important factor. I'm glad you said that because it's one of the things that I do when I, I do a lot of training and things. I say correlation and causation are two different things, but we often in the field confuse them. It's a similar, there's, there's uh, they're similar, but not the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think of that, I was just in a bookstore and my, immediately my eyes were looking only for James Joyce. Right. That's just what I had in my mind. I like reading. I shouldn't say I like reading. I've been I like the challenge of reading James Joyce. So there's a reward for me to find something, get that. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same strength or or same intensity of a a, a cue for a substance. Um, Since you're saying that, you know, and it makes sense that this process itself is not pathological, part of normal brain function. Are we just talking about the plasticity of the brain? Yeah, I think you can characterize it that way, you know, so you're you're going to undergo changes um, in, you know, synaptic plasticity and uh, the way that different neurons connect to each other as a consequence of learning. Um, And again, under a lot of circumstances, it's a very adaptive thing. You want your brain to kind of rewire in a way that will pull you toward stuff that's rewarding. Um, You're going to see that with substance abuse. Um, and that's going to influence how someone who struggles with substance abuse processes cues and other kinds of stimuli. We talk about in the in the treatment and recovery world neuroplasticity that you can kind of retrain your brain, but we forget that the brain doesn't say good or bad. So the when the substances are involved, the brain itself is learning the value and the reward associated with that substance. It's not characterizing it as good or bad it just is what it is or am i way off on that i'm not 100 percent sure i i follow every bit of that um but i and it doesn't mean that i disagree with it i i'm, just, I'm not 100 percent sure i uh i can complete the thought there okay we we talk about in treatment say oh neuroplasticity you're going to retrain your brain but the brain we forget that there's plasticity in the process of using substance, the brain is learning the effects of that substance and the reward and creating another learning pathway, so to speak. Yeah, I think um, that's a fair statement. So we we talk about it at the end as being, oh, that's how we learn to not use instead of saying it also taught us how to learn to use. Yeah, and, and you can never, if, if you take that part out of the equation, I think, you know, you're you're going to, impair your ability to really understand the processes that you need to curb because how somebody got there 
tells you a lot about how you might want to try to help them get away from that. And that's a perfect lead into to my next question. You know, at the completion of the study, and then we're talking it was done in 2015, 2016, um, you reported that there had not been any established clinical utility at that point in time. Uh, it was still too too new. There was more research to be done. Has that changed at all to this point? I would say in, in large measure, no. Um, but uh, we're, we're getting there. Um, and so... Uh, a lot of the research, and I think you can probably get an intuition for it based on you know what we've talked about so far. My my my, my chief goal in my science is to understand you know what exactly is substance abuse disorder, right? What exactly is going on in a person's brain when they kind of have these experiences? And so the the, the long term hope is that when we can really get a better handle on you know what your brain's doing when you know the the whole you know, set of circumstances that we see in substance abuse unfolds in a person's life. You know, if we really understand how that's working, why that's happening, then we're going to be in a better position to develop treatments that are reflecting, you know, the truth about how addiction works. Um, and so I, I'm not trying to develop a therapy myself. Right. Uh, I'm trying to lay the foundation for more informed approaches to the treatment of substance abuse disorder. Um, and so one context in which you can see that is uh, attentional bias modification approaches to treatment in substance abuse. It had basically been a pretty abysmal failure, you know, in my field up to this point in time. The idea that you can just um, experimentally put somebody in a situation where you can sort of make their attention to be unbiased, you know, by these kinds of drug cues. It just doesn't really work. Um, and and I, I, don't, I don't know if I, I don't really have the time to go into some of the nitty-gritty <laughs> on that, but I, I think part of what my research is helping to show is why some of those approaches were ineffective, um, and then what we might be able to do to, to develop approaches that, that could be more effective, that'll actually translate to attention in the real world in the context in which people find themselves and not in the kind of, you know, pseudo context that I can create in a laboratory environment. Um, and then one other thing that, that I would add too, before it slips my mind. Um, oh yeah, you know, it, it, if we have a deeper understanding of how these attentional biases work, I think another long-term goal that I would like to have is that we, we would have a much more individualized understanding of, okay, what is a person's triggers? You know, because I think the, the way that attentional biases play into those triggers, there's multiple different um, kinds of patterns, triggers that you can see in a person. And if we can figure out a, a good way of quantifying those, mm -hmm. um, then we can create, you know, more individualized treatment programs that, that reflect, you know, what a person's unique triggers are. Um, and that is one area that I would kind of see in the long term, my research really helping to inform is an individualized approach to treatment, because there's different kinds of learning and different patterns of learning that can influence how you process drug use. And if we understand, you know, which pattern reflects your own personal experience with substance abuse, then we can come up with a more individually tailored plan to help you manage those triggers. And I think in the field, that's something that we're moving towards. We're not doing a real good job of is individualizing the care for somebody by understanding what's happening for them as an individual. And what you're describing in the research it's helping to explain some of that or to understand a little of that. And what I like most about what you've done 
is there's way too many attempts to define what substitute disorders are. And this is not a definition. This is about understanding. And, um, you know, Oliver Wilde once said to define is to limit. And there's what you've done is is unlimited. It can grow to, and develop in so many more ways rather than saying this is a dot on a page. And this is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really feel that just understanding, OK, what's going on, you know, when, when we see this kind of general pattern that, that we call substance abuse disorder. Um, yeah, that's really at the heart of my own research is just trying to understand the basics of, okay, well, what's really happening here and, and how in particular, what I focus on again, of course, is how they process information. How does the way you process information change once you've found yourself in a position where you struggle to, you know, say no to a substance. And it goes right into some of the things that we've talked about as a field, uh, a very important is mindfulness, being aware of, of what's going on, being as mindful and in the moment as possible to kind of understand what's happening for ourselves. We'll never fully get it, uh, but it's important, I think, in, and it seems to have some useful, what you're describing helps explain them why mindfulness can be important as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think once you're more mindful of the kinds of, uh, like I said, with attentional biases, I like to call it gravity. You know, it's kind of like where you're mind tends to go it's kind of pulled in certain directions and, and a lot of those those pulls are you know beyond sort of conscious awareness when they happen but but if you're aware of the fact that they do happen and you're aware of the kinds of situations in which those kinds of pulls are likely to be experienced then then that empowers you to try to influence your circumstances in ways that will make you better equipped and in better, you know, more healthy situations where you're going to have an easier time resisting those temptations. I, I really think that it, it's important for the field to understand what attentional biases are uh, and have a general understanding of learning theory and, and how attention plays and, you know, the old stuff we learned in early psych, stimulus response and, and all of that. That's often forgotten in this field. We look at it too much as a, uh, um, an art as opposed to a science and there's scientific base for what we do or should be. Um, before we finish up, anything else that you'd like our listeners to know? Well, it, if I were to kind of say what, one thing that my research has you know, you know, helped me to, to appreciate um, it's that uh, the, the, the more I study this and the more I kind of see how these processes unfold, you know, it, it, it really helps give me a, a deeper empathy, you know, for people that, that struggle with substance use disorder. Because, you know, when I was growing up, especially in you know, elementary school and they have all these kind of programs that they, yeah. they institute to inform you about substance use disorders um, and, and the kind of mindset that I had coming out of those and then I think it was what they were kind of going for almost it's just sort of a hey you know like the the best thing you can do is just you know stay away from this like a thousand feet you know which would be great but also if you fall into it you know it's kind of like shame on you you know like only weak people really struggle with this kind of stuff you know just say no right that was yeah. the tagline when I was a kid just yep. say no um, and so what, what that can engender is a sense of like anybody that struggles with saying, no, it's like, oh, you're weak, you know, like, oh, you're just not as motivated as I am, you know, and uh, a lot of people can kind of get the sense of superiority 
you know, when they when they look at somebody who struggles with a substance use disorder. Um, but if you've ever had a New Year's resolution, and because I, I I do a lot of interviews on New Year's resolutions too. Um, if you've ever had a New Year's resolution to to you know cut out those sweets, you know, and maybe you say you know it's not you're not morbidly obese, but maybe you're 30 pounds overweight, you realize it's not great for your health. Um, but you really struggle um, to maintain that resolution, you know, and you get that kind of pull in from that food, you know, you smell that that the you know pie in the bakery, or you see that candy in your drawer, you know, in the home. And you can't get it off your mind. And all of a sudden it's just like, oh, well, it's just one time or, you know, I'll do better next week. Um, all those kinds of things, you know, come up. And, and it's just it, it's the same process that's going on in substance use disorder. Again, it's amped up and even stronger with a drug reward. But but it's that same kind of process that causes, you know, uh, most everybody to struggle with maintaining their New Year's resolution. It's a kind um, of so, an emotional battle. Absolutely. And, and so I, I think if you think about it that way and you see those parallels and you appreciate those parallels, it, it helps give you more empathy for people that struggle with substance use disorder because their their brains are falling into the same patterns that make it hard for anybody to kick a habit. And, you know, people like me who have been blessed not to struggle with substance use disorder, you know, like I, I don't even fully grasp, you know, how hard it is for them because it's even harder for them than it is for me because that drug rewards all the stronger. And it's jacked up that habit learning system even more. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think that that's important. And I think the, the research that I do, you know, helps point to that, that fact that, you know, like the, these people who struggle with this, like they, they, they do deserve a lot of empathy because it is really hard. And we all struggle with these things. And it's tremendously stigma reducing. And I, the value in that for me is immeasurable. Uh, because it's it's the brain doing what the brain does, for lack of a better one, um, just with the different intentional biases. Um, well, now you got me craving barbecue, but I like Carolina barbecue. I like the vinegar. <laughs> but I'm thinking about it, and it's it's almost lunchtime for me here. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to once again thank Dr. Brian Anderson of Texas A&M for sharing information on this research that we need to pay attention to. We hope that it has piqued your curiosity and impels you to learn more. And please do not forget the dialectic of life that follows President Wilson's words and that the only constant in life is change. And we owe it to those we serve to be open to new things, new ideas, new research, and pay attention to it. We appreciate all who listen. Thanks for spending a small part of the day with us. We are always seeking sponsors to help offset the costs of production. Please contact us if you would like to get your message out across the country in a fully tax-deductible manner. Until next time. Dr. Anderson, you have a great day, and I appreciate all your time. You bet. Thanks for having me.